Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And we're Slapping Glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to tip off 2021 with professional coach and NBA consultant from Australia, Coach Liam Flynn. Coach Flynn is here today to discuss critical communication, teaching split action and cutting, playing high in the defensive gap, and we have a ton of fun in a brand new segment called Start, Sub, or Sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. And subscribe to our in-depth Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Liam Flynn. We want to start by discussing how coaches are able to, during a season, in real time, learn from mistakes or learn from failures and have systems in place to where they can identify those failures and quickly fix them. And so from your point of view, what are some practices or what are some ways that you believe coaches and coaching staffs can do that, can actively identify when something isn't working and then quickly fix it and move forward? So I think there's, there's a couple of things there. The first thing is just being comfortable that mistakes are happening and that mistakes are uh, necessary evil to actually growing and progressing and uh, generally, when we talk, you know, coaches talk about we want um, better decision makers or we want um, a higher level of offense or defense. That actually involves creating environments where you allow mistakes to happen, and then you're okay with just kind of sitting back and not intervening every time there's a mistake. And I think that's almost the hardest thing to do as a coach. That we coach how we were coached, and when we were coached, it was very much everything needs to look pretty and precise. And instead of let's allow the players to explore and discover because in skill acquisition terms, we need them to um, perceive things and action those things and they need to be tightly woven together. We can't just teach all the action over here and this is how we shoot, this is how we pass. It looks really pretty, but don't make any mistakes. That's not how um, skill acquisition works. So we really need to be okay with mistakes and okay with players learning and exploring um, how to, uh, I guess, put skills into action. To follow up too, and I think one of the reasons I know um, I told you beforehand about this question is, you know, say after a difficult loss, you know, coaching staffs go back to the office or they meet the next morning and they watch the film. And sometimes it's hard to always exactly pinpoint what went wrong, why it went wrong, and then how to put a a practice plan together for that day to fix it. So in your opinion, what are some ways that coaches can do that at a high level and help their team continue to improve throughout the year? Yeah. I can't remember where I heard it. It was on a podcast, but it was essentially, if you don't stat it, you don't care about it. 
So I think that's, that's one thing is that you have to, you have to determine what's really important to you and then you have to measure it. And so if there's a measurement, then you can uh, decide whether you've done something good or bad, that it's less of the, uh, I think we did something well, or what I saw was well, because everyone sees the game differently from their vantage point. But if it's statted and measured, then we can actually say, well, this is our standards and we fell below our standards in these areas. Now, that means that you have to select some things. You can't select everything. So what's important, stat it, and then you can go back to the meeting and that can be your jumping off point for uh, this is the, the numbers and this is where we can, you know, we can make a practice plan from there. Um, sometimes, though, it's just as it's, it's something simple as, you know what, we just, we're playing very hard. And that's the one that really sucks as coaches because it's, it's harder right. to uh, solve that problem. But I think measurement is really, really important in deciding whether something is good or bad and that you have to, you can't measure everything, that you have to find what's important to you. And generally that comes from, you know, your style of play, uh, your belief in the way the team should play. That's generally where your numbers are going to be pointing towards. Will these measurements be able to aid you in knowing whether it's a tactical or an execution problem? Like you said, whether the guys just weren't playing hard enough. When is there a point where maybe it is tactical and you need to move on from it or change? Yeah, it's a really good question. That's generally the, that's coaching, right? That's the deciding whether we need to keep persisting with something or we just need to, you know, sub it out and put something else in. So I think that's, that's not a, a, a black and white answer there. It's um, as coaches, generally we try and, you know, do something harder, do something better, make a change to a lineup to persist with a tactic. But then if we still don't like what we see, then we change the tactic. But it's not something that we change at the first uh, error because if we're just chopping and changing, then it takes away the, the trust from the team. So I think that can be the same in how you measure things, you know, your, your summary meetings after the game. It's like, do we need to keep doing this harder? Can we do it with different personnel? If we can't do either of those, yep, let's change the tactic and let's have some evidence behind it. So when we present it to the team saying, we're going to change from icing the side pick and rolls to contact switching that we have, this is the evidence we've found that actually when we do it in X number of possessions, our points per possession are actually so much lower when we do it this way than when we do it this way. The players go, okay, that's some sound evidence there. On an individual level, now a player that's struggling or has had a stretch of bad games or whatever the case may be, what are some ways that coaches can strike a balance between, you know, sort of helping them get better, uh, maybe being critically or hard on them in a certain way, but also, you know, keeping their confidence at a higher level so they can continue to produce on the floor? I think the, the conversation has to have a foundation of you actually care about me, that like... I know that as a younger coach, I came in as a coach that had never had a playing background. So when I started in the professional level, I thought it was about being the smart, smartest guy in the room and having the best drill or the best set. So I would end up uh, talking at players instead of talking with players. And so that was the biggest uh, change I had was actually, you know, we talk about relationships. It's 100% important that firstly, they need to know that you care about them as a human. And that's the foundation and the jumping off point for everything that you talk about basketball-wise. Then after that, then they'll care about whether you know your stuff and can you make them better. 
And those were the things that uh, I had a Zoom recently with our female coaches from North Adelaide with um, the Cleveland Cavaliers assistant coach, um, Lindsay Gottlieb. She said those are the things that helped her when she was dealing with professional players on the men's level that did that did they know she cared about them and then it was you know do you know your stuff can you help me so I think that that's the jumping off point um, for when you're talking to players but the other thing I think is something that I've learned over the time is empathy as well I think you do need to have empathy with your players that yep they might have sucked at training today and but generally there's a reason for it so let's find out what the reason is then you can just have the power of the pause mate I saw that you were struggling today at practice. Pause. Don't try and talk over the top of them. Just let them see if they can. Yeah, coach, I just didn't have it. My eight-year-old was a pain in the butt last night. Didn't get enough sleep. Okay, mate, no worries. Like, then we can work from that, you know. But I think when you show empathy, you have the power of the pause, you grow that relationship, then you can start getting on them about, mate, you just went sprinting back on defense. I know you're tired, but bro, like I need you to get back and match up. <laughs> For sure. As a head coach, when you're, you're giving the players a chance to, you know, if it's a one-on-one to voice his opinion, and, but then you don't agree with his opinion, do you run the risk of then losing him when he gave his opinion and you didn't heed his opinion? Because you obviously have to balance the team as well. Yeah, and that's the, that's the honest conversation you have at the start is that, I'll always listen. I'll always be curious about how you see the game because you're, the way you see it is going to be different to me, but you're seeing it from your vantage point of how it will benefit you. I've got to see it from a vantage point of how it will benefit the team. So I'm always going to be curious about what you think, but the end decision is on me and we do that with respect. I respectfully listen to you and then you respectfully, okay, accept the decision and then we move forward. We like to dive into the offense and, you know, we had the chance to listen to your Zoom meeting the, uh, last week and you talked about taking away space on defense. So we would like to look at creating space on offense and how you go about teaching that and creating a, a, that environment. Wow. There's, a, there's so many ways to go with this, but, uh, you know, just thinking about the way that we educate our coaches about the offensive side is that we generally start with alignments. Like what alignment are you going to be in? So that that's the start. You look at your personnel or you look at your system. What alignment? Are we five out, four out, three out? And will we, we can also go from different alignments during a possession. So last year in Jerusalem, we were really fortunate that our players could go from like a three out alignment into four out, back into three out. So having some idea of this is the alignment that we're going to play. And then also what are our automatics? So what are the things that automatically happen when things happen? So, for instance, when the ball is penetrated baseline, where are we filling? Are we cutting? You know, these are our automatics. When the ball goes into the low post, what are we doing automatically from that? So if you have your kind of alignments and your automatics, then you, you kind of got the foundation of, you know, what you want to do spacing-wise on the offensive end. After that, I think there's two things about facing. One is... How can we make defense accountable? So are they having a holiday standing uh, defending people? And how can we make that player accountable? So, for instance, in our system last year at Jerusalem, the player that was the deep big underneath was sealing his player really hard. 
And so that meant that the player in the, in the paint wasn't um, having a holiday. He was continually accountable to that player that was sealing him. So essentially we were playing four on four around that player ceiling. And you can do the same thing with off-ball cuts or off-ball screens that we can't allow defenders to have holidays off the ball. The second thing is how can we distract defenders? So you can uh, make spacing better by um, having players more attuned to what their player is doing and less attuned to what's happening with the ball. So off-ball movement, um, things that turn their attention back to their player and even turn their positioning back to their player. So it's not just about where you stand, where you align. It's about how can I make you accountable and how can I distract your attention from where the main action is? If we can kind of hone in on, on the cutting, how do you train smart cutters? You know, how, how are you training them to know when to cut and where to cut? So I think that cutting has to be a dynamic thing. It can't be a slow cut. And generally, slow cuts are when uh, players cut by rope, you know, pass and cut, pass and cut. They get yelled at and they cut. So slow cuts screw up space and generally you don't catch the ball for easy baskets. So what we say to our players is that we want all our cuts to be dynamic and therefore a reason. There's a reason why you cut. So uh, one of the big things that we do on offense is we say that there are 12 advantages and some of those advantages cure cue back cuts or hard cuts. So a overplay advantage, someone overplays or they top block you on a wide pin down. So that is a advantage, a reaction, and you have a dynamic cut to the basket. And either you would you know, create a, a layup for yourself or you might create a two on the cutter advantage, which opens up something else. But it's a fast cut in reaction to something that the offense does. And it's the same thing with off-ball cutting when you've got pick and rolls. That's generally because there's a loss of vision advantage. So again, it's, there's a, something that the offense does. We react to that. It's a dynamic cut. And because it's dynamic, it's going to be an easy basket or it's going to create you know, an overhelp advantage or a two-on-the-cutter advantage or something like that that opens up a wide-open shot somewhere else. So I think that when it comes to cutting, there has to be a reason. Now, it can also, when you get to the highest levels, it becomes more sophisticated. So it could be that we're attacking next defense. So we know that there's a tactic from the defense before we come into the game. So we know that as we come off this shakes, pick and roll, bringing the ball to the middle, that they're going to next from the nail defender. And because of that, we are going to, that's going to be a cue that's going to cause a reaction and the cutting is going to be dynamic and it's going to be in reaction to something that the defense does tactically. So if these advantages can be these things that just happen as the game goes on, like loss of vision or overplay, but it also can be something as coaches that we're like, we're going to set this up. We know that they do this, so our reaction is going to be that, but that means that every cut is going to be a dynamic cut. It isn't just going to be us strolling in the park. Some of the cuts that we've seen more of, especially looking at Europe right now, is the shallow cut. So like what we're talking about right now, in my head, I'm visualizing like a really nice 45 cut or someone rim cutting or someone back cutting from the baseline and it clears that space for them to then play into. Shallow cut obviously is a little different where you're you're peeling it off and usually it's underneath a, a pick and roll in the middle part of the floor. Can you talk at all about that cut and, and maybe why, in your opinion, it's becoming more popular? 
Yeah, super interesting because I think back to when um, I started learning how to coach pick and roll, I don't know, eight to 10 years ago, everything was about keeping the floor spread so that we can, the key action or the key trigger is the pick and roll. And then I think as defences have gotten sophisticated and they've become five-man defences, we've, as coaches, thought, how can we make less players involved in guarding the action? And it comes back to what I was talking about before where we make defenders accountable and we distract defenders. So to me, the shallow cut is a great distraction because suddenly you can't be the high player on the two side and just be staring at the pick and roll. Suddenly you're distracted by this cut that comes through And if you're actually guarding the cutter, you have to be accountable to that player. So now instead of guarding the pick and roll with five defenders, now you've got four defenders to having to guard the pick and roll. Now, the challenge is always the timing of that cut because you don't want to be screwing up space. You need it to happen, you know, just prior to the player setting up and the the screen coming into the action. Uh, And sometimes, you know what, you don't get the timing right and they dribble right into the cutter. But... I think over the last 18 months where I've seen more and more teams do it, I think the players have learned about the timing of when to shallow through and they don't get in each other's way of either the pick and roll creator or the roller. Like they're not cutting through rolling, like they're not cutting at a time where the roller wants to get into a gap. So it's super interesting. I love the shallow cut. I love the baseline cut as well while the pick and roll is happening. I just think it's a really cool innovation from some coaches to make more defenders accountable and have them distracted by other things than the main action. With the shallow cut, is there a cue when to do it or is it more so the coaching staff has kind of dictated whether it's a play design that we're going to shallow cut on this action? Yeah, I think that from the ones that I've seen, it's a play design that we haven't got to a point in my mind that it's just happening um, organically yet. Um, but I think that the cut has to go early. I think that's the, the thing. It doesn't want to, you don't want to go too early that it's already finished before the action has started because then the defense has a chance to get back on balance and get attuned to you know, the main trigger again. It is tough timing, but I think it's one of those things where the more you do it at practice, the more you figure it, like the players will figure out the timing. They'll start reading the situation, reading the cues of their teammate of, okay, he's about to start his pick and roll setup. I can see the screener is now sprinting in. This is the time that I go. And so, you know, generally it's early, but I think there's definitely some gray areas where the players have to learn the right timing. Sticking on cutting, um, when you're breaking down teaching players how to cut, and let's say this is not just a rule that a team has where on the backside they're going to 45 or it's not a shallow cut set design, but let's say more like uh, like split action where you're throwing it to the elbow and then you're going to get some sort of screening action and you want one of these guys to, to cut to the rim. When you're breaking that down, let's say three on three, you're teaching younger players how to read. What are some cues? What are some ways that you teach that action? So with any new thing that we're teaching, I always teach the concept before the precision. So generally with, let's say, split action, we just want to be tricky. Just be tricky. So... Sometimes he's going to cut, sometimes you're going to cut, but we just want to be tricky so that the defense doesn't know who's going to the rim and who's going to the ball. So that's like the first concept we do. So we don't talk about angles of screens or setting up your cuts or anything. It's just like, just be tricky. So from that, generally you get some really good outcomes because, you know, most of the time players know how to be tricky. You know, I always say to them, um, what's deception? 
And they're like, oh, I don't really know. I said, okay, who has said to their mum or dad that they are going to bed and then stayed up for an extra hour and played PlayStation? And they've gone like that. I said, that's deception. So we want you to be deceiving. We want you to be tricky. So when you do that in a screening situation, what they start looking for is they start to attune to the defense and the cues of the defense. So they'll see the defense's body leaning towards guarding them coming off the screen and they'll slip out. You know, all the screener will start coming into the screen and he'll start hearing the, the defenders saying switch and then he's gone. So, you know, it's that whole thing about trickiness. And then once we get the concept in, you know, then it's like, okay, let's kind of tweak the precision a little bit. Here's a way you could do the screening. I'd like you to try and get under the defense and bring the screen all the way to the cutter. So instead of the cutter coming to the screener, I want you to bring the screen to the cutter. And we give them a little bit of precision about it. And then we're like, let's keep playing again. But again, our concept overall is trickiness and deception. When you teach the two screeners that are involved and the two cutters in the split action, who's in charge in that action offensively of uh, the first cutter to the rim? Is it the bottom guy coming from the corner that you say, hey, if you, you're going to be the first cutter or is it you just give them both the same opportunity to read and potentially slip? Or how, do, how would you teach who cuts first, I guess? Yeah, I, I don't have a, um, a rule for who goes first because sometimes it could be that the screener, as they come into the screen, they already start seeing that there's a defender on the outside reading and they go. So, uh, And you know what? Sometimes they just screw it up. You know, They both go to the rim and they both screw it up. And it's like, that's okay. We'll just get to another action and create another advantage. Yeah, I would rather them be more attuned to being tricky and reading the defense and making good reads like that than being robotic saying, okay, you go first, then you read off him, then you cut because then you're easy to read. And then to me, it's like, well, it's going to look pretty, but the defense is going to see it coming a mile away. So I would rather a little bit of the gray area and a little bit of, you know, them reading and sometimes mucking it up than 10 times we do it with beautiful precision and it looks pretty and none of them create advantages because the defense is like, oh, I can see this coming a mile away. <laughs> For sure. You, you talk about giving the players cues, but from a coaching standpoint, are there certain cues that you can pick up on that they're not picking it up or, you know, instead of just always being result-based, like we didn't score, we did it wrong, but maybe what are the kind of the common mistakes that the players make where they're, you can tell they're not reading the cues, they're not reading their man. Sometimes you do need to help players on where to look and what are they looking for. So, you know, again, in that um, example of split action, you know, we give them the idea of being tricky and deceptive. We uh, let them play. But sometimes kids are like, uh, they just keep screwing it up. Or even our pro players, same thing. They just keep screwing it up. And we're like, okay, this is where you can look for the answers here. So you're the screener. You can look at, this guy and see where his body weight is and what he's doing. You can see if your defender, which side of which shoulder that they're on, that can give you a, an, a reason for whether you slip or whether you hold the pick. So you can show them where to look and what to look for. But then the next progression is always let them do it. Let them do it. Don't always say, no, that was wrong. No, no. Like after a few reps, generally players, if they know the general concept they know where to look and what to look for. You've got to allow them to just figure it out over the course of a few reps. Now, 
if they really still don't do it, it may be that you need to show them from a different vantage point. So that might be film or that might be just like, come stand here and let's watch the next rep where someone who does know what they're doing is on the floor. And it's like, see right there. Can you, and actually ask them, did you see that? And ask them, uh, don't say, Hey, did you see that he did this? Blah, blah, blah. Just say, did you see that? Ask them the question. Oh, no, I didn't see it. Okay. Let's do it. Let's let them do it again. This time I want you to watch him do like watch his body weight and let's see what the reaction is from the defense. And then you just stand there and you have a conversation where you're showing them where to look and what to look for. Coach, you, you just mentioned the defense and we've been talking about some of these kind of gray areas of decision-making on the offensive side. But um, like Pat had mentioned earlier, you gave a, a great Zoom presentation uh, that we saw last week about the defensive side of the ball and helping players in the gray areas of defense, when to help, when not to help, to recover, all these kinds of things. Can you speak a little bit about that, about helping players from the defensive side make better decisions? Well, it's now time for the car driving analogy, lads. <laughs> so generally when I talk about defensive decision-making, the first thing coaches talk about is, are my, not all coaches, but some coaches say, my players aren't smart enough for that. And I always ask them, how do they get to practice? And if they're pro players, they probably drove to practice. And I say, do you realize how much more difficult the skill of driving a car is than actually defending a pick and roll? It's so much more difficult. But players can do that all the time and they don't need a coach sitting in the passenger seat telling them what to do. So in broad terms, when we learn to drive a car, we learn the concept of this is a car, drive it at this speed limit, don't crash into anything, don't run over anyone. And you're like, okay, I can come at that. Then we give them a little bit of prescriptive instruction of this is the stick, you need to push this pedal, this is how you hold your hands. We give them a little bit of that and we sit there and we let them drive and that. But the main learning you get in driving a car is actually being on the road and learning about what to look for, where do I look, and you just start getting this feeling of this is how I drive. I perceive things in my environment and then I react to them. So that's driving a car. It's the same thing with defensive decision-making. It's like we're going to give you the concept of we want to be a team that's disruptive and we want to make the offense feel uncomfortable. So you know that. That is our goal. We can also be even more precise. Like we want to force only one contested pull-up jump shot off the dribble and get the rebound. That is a good defensive possession. So we give them the overall broad brushstrokes. Then we let them play and let them self-organize. So they, you know, if I'm a uh, small guard guarding another small guard, I figure out how close I can be to the ball to make that player feel uncomfortable. And I'm going to organize a little differently or self-organize if I'm bigger, I'll play with a bigger gap. But again, I just have the same understanding of I've got to make this player feel uncomfortable. So then we allow them to learn and play and make decisions so they learn when to go and help, when not to help, where to look if they're in an off-ball two-side against a pick-and-roll hedge coverage. You know, like they start learning from the environment. It's not just the coach just um, intervening constantly. It's, no, let's just give them many reps, show them where to look, what to look for, and then let them go and not intervene all the time. We talk about the offensive side of the ball. Sometimes guys are just great decision makers and we put the ball in their hands at the end of a possession and they can just make a play and we trust them on the offensive side. 
you never really hear that about the defense where guys are just great decision makers defensively and then coaches maybe let them have more rope in which to wander or make decisions defensively. Can we maybe talk about that a little bit about guys that are just innately maybe great decision makers and then like we just spoke about a second ago, guys that aren't as much and how coaches can kind of create a a bigger concept around different skill sets on the defensive side? Yeah, it is common that on defense, we're generally more black and white and we're rules-based. We're we're less, um, I guess we're more risk-adverse as coaches on defense. Um, But I think that, again, if like what you said, if we want good decision-making on offense, there's no reason why we can't do that on defense. And I think a lot of coaches are doing that already and they don't realize it. So I talked before about how closely players guard the ball. That's a decision. Um, Whether we help or whether we stay, that's a big decision to teach your players. Um, So not all drives are created equal. We say that there's wide drives and line drives. So line drives are this, this drive will result in an easy basket. So we need to go and help and put two on the ball. Um, This, this next drive though is an angled drive behind the backboard against a superior defender. So in that case, I'm going to build back to my player. So I think that's like a super um, important one because that also, that wide drive line drive goes into pick and roll coverages, off ball pick and roll coverages as well. So again, if you're guarding a screener and that if the pick and roll creator comes off the screen on a wide drive, then no screen, no scheme. So these kind of little building blocks, um, coaches are probably already putting in their practices, but now they just need to augment them to other parts of their, their strategy. So wide drive, line drive, now move that into your pick and roll screen strategy. Overhelping or so being on the weak side, looking at what's our coverage. It's a two-on-two containment coverage. I don't actually need to pull in as much because the role is not going to get in behind the screen as defender. So again, like we can start making those decisions from like little decisions about giving help in easier situations and then move them to more complex situations like pick and roll coverages. In terms of, you know, practicing this, is there really any practical sense in doing any sort of shell defense or anything where it's not live, you know, where they can't, like you said, learn and make mistakes and kind of understand how much help they can or can't give. Is it really all the learning going to be taking place more so in the live segments, whether it's three on three, four on four, five on five? Yeah, I think shell is like five on oh on offense, that there is uh, a place for it to give, I guess, confidence to the players and just a little bit of, okay, this is like, especially in five on oh, it just gives you confidence and competence in what we're doing. Shell's probably something similar like that. But are you going to really teach players decision-making? No, you're not. So they are going to be getting a good sweat up. They'll probably, depending on how you teach it, if you actually talk about the reasoning for being in shell positions, like the why. The why are we shrinking? Well, we're shrinking to give the offense less, less space to create advantages in. If you do shell that way, then you're actually going to get something out of it. If it's just, well... I don't really, they're probably just getting a sweat. You probably should just put them on the bikes on the side of the court here. So I think that you can do those on air, those shells, those things, and like teach some uh, concepts that are important. But yeah, if you want to do decision-making, it has to be messy. You have to add at the very least simulated defense or simulated offense and choices 
so that it's not clear cut, that it, it could be this or it could be that. So you are going to have to read. So let's say on defense, if we're talking about, uh, again, the pick and roll uh, screen as defender, you have to read whether the creator is coming off on a, not only a, a wide angle or line angle, but he's actually looking to be a threat. Because some guys can come off on the right angle, but you could see that they're just trying to get to the next action. And the smart mm-hmm. defenders read the eyes and they read the body. And as they come off, they start seeing them pick the ball up already like they want to pass and they just stop back at the screen. So it's, you know, you put them in those scenarios where they actually have to read cues and read what's happening. And then you get out of the way and you allow them to make those mistakes. Because sometimes they're going to screw it up. They're going to read one thing. The offense was actually doing another and they'll blow by and lay it up. So it's okay, let's do it again. And then if this mistake persists, then it can be, okay, what do you think the problem is here? And you can start it with some open questioning. Could you, if I can stay within the shell and then focus on playing high in the gaps or in the passing lanes, does shell serve the purpose of teaching position? Or as I kind of grew up, I think maybe we all did, it was kind of, oh, we do shell to over-exaggerate our help, over-exaggerate our position, knowing that in the game, it's not going to be so. So with teaching, like being high in these gaps and kind of getting players used to that, does shell have a good purpose? Yeah, I think... Like, let's say with a shell, the way I would make it more dynamic would, instead of having the players stand in positions, I would have the offensive players every time they passed to swap spots with someone else. So at least that we have the concept of um, positioning and why we position. We position to shrink space, make it harder for the offense to create advantages. But let's just and add it a more dynamic element that instead of just standing on the same spot on the left elbow, that as the possession goes, I'm going to be moving from the left elbow to the right elbow to home to moving all around and I still have to get to the concept, but it's way more dynamic. And then I think that's how I would, you know, I would make the the shell drill a little bit more, yeah, dynamic for the players to make decisions in their positioning, not just this is very clear. You are going from the left elbow to guarding the player to the nail and, you know, in this small little space. And that just never happens in a game. In your Zoom presentation and also with Jerusalem, you taught, again, saying on that being high in the passing lane. What are the speed bumps you're going to hit in teaching that, getting that defense executed at a high enough level to have success? I think it was the, I mean, everyone talks about Coach Kaddish being an offensive genius, and he is. Like last year, the team was the number one offense in Champions League history by a country mile. He is an absolute offensive genius. And the three out to win system was just amazing to be, to learn, to learn from coach about how we created advantages in the pick and roll and his concept there. But I will say that I learned as much on the defensive side from him and his, especially the geometry of the court. And that is being high on your players. And now I watch the games and whenever I watch games now, it's like too low, too low, too low. Because playing high on your player, again, shrinks space. And the whole thing about offense, well, the first thing to me is you've got to create space. Whenever we get the ball, that's the first thing we do is we create space because it makes it hard for the defense. So conversely on defense, the first thing we should do is shrink space. And generally in the past, we've thought about shrinking is shrinking in to the paint. But that creates a lot of 
uh, longer closeouts and a lot of overhelps and a lot of off-balance defenders or what we call OBDs. So what we'd rather do is play higher. So that was shrink space. And that when our player receives it, then their only way to go is really down court and into the corners. And that's exactly where we want them to go. They'll run into our hands if they keep driving baseline. So that was a huge thing for me, that that positioning. But it also had so many more benefits in decision-making that when you're high, you have first mover advantage. So for instance, you're guarding um, a pick and roll screener, you're high, you see him move first and you can move him around the court. But when you're low, you're late. You know, he goes, you don't see it coming. Now you're off balance. Now you're reacting. And then all your decisions of what you could do in the pick and roll are so much fewer because you can't hedge above the level of the screen because you've already started a meter behind the guy. So when you're high, you've got so many more options and you are the first mover. It's the same when guarding wide pin downs. If you're on top, you can force the cutter down court or you can blow up the action. So I learned so much from coach on the defensive end. Now you have to couple that with intense ball pressure. That's the one caveat. If you don't have intense ball pressure and everyone plays high off the ball, then you're going to get passes whizzing past your ear to backdoor cutters. So it's really important that you couple intense ball pressure with playing high in the gaps. But once you do that, the geometry of the court significantly alters where the offense is always playing in gaps and they're always moving second. You're the one that's dictating terms to where the offense goes. If you're playing so high and the ball is swung, is is your help side going to be pretty much the same? Or because, you know, if it's swung back, you don't want to be, you know, how how is it like, let's say, transitioning from, yeah, being in the gap to help side, but then also help side back into the gap? What are you telling them? So they'll still be higher on the weak side than what they usually are in, I don't know, how I coached defense five years ago. I would be, okay, I want you to have your head right under the basket. So, no, that's not how we would do it. We wanted them like two or three big steps higher. So, again, um, you are, you know, you can be susceptible to people cutting back door. But funnily enough, the more we did it, the more the players like learned to attune to what was happening. And they were like, I can still play high, but I can still split my vision. And if someone starts moving, I can control that cutter. And so they got better at it. Sometimes we gave up, I don't know, one, maybe two backdoor cuts a game. And we were like, you know what? That's the, the tax you have to pay for being a great defensive team. Because the other 40 possessions of defense that we had, we were able to impact the offense by being higher. So, yes, when they're moving from, you know, they're high in the gap, then they come to the split line, they are going to be higher. But that's where we want them because especially with pick and roll coverages, you need to be coming up and like taking away space either the short rolls or you need to crunch dynamic rollers earlier. You can't let them get all the way to the rim and just pin you underneath. So we had everyone higher on the floor. And uh, yeah, I, I just, I'll never coach different. Well, I won't say never, but that's how I'll be coaching defense for the foreseeable future. Coach, a uh, technical follow-up on that as well. So I'm imagining you will get a lot of teams kind of to go back to our earlier section in the podcast about you know, 45 cuts or corner cuts. I'm imagining teams are trying to cut your guys' defense all the time to loosen it up. How do you teach your guys to recover on the back door? So there's a couple of things. Firstly, obviously the intense ball pressure and by forcing the ball wide, it's actually really hard to get the right angle to make a backdoor pass. So if we're talking about, 
you're coming off a mid pick and roll uh, or even an angle pick and roll and there's just one person in the corner. If you can yeah. force that ball wider and higher, it's really hard to make that pass in on the right angle if that person cuts back door. It's just really difficult. You're under intense pressure and the person who's high on the floor is high on the passing lane. It's just a really tough gap to get through. Now, if we're talking about a shakes pick and roll where you're coming to the middle and there's two defenders on that side, then again, they are high in the gap and they're high in the passing lane. And if there's a 45 cut, then the 45 cut goes into the low help and he basically, he runs into his hands. Okay. So we, we catch that guy. Now, it's not an automatic switch. Sometimes the, the high defender is good enough to, he sees what's happening early, the cut goes early. And because we're pressuring the ball so hard that it comes off on a wide angle, the nail defender starts seeing his man going early and he reacts and he just jams that cutter and goes out. So I think having that decision-making that we're not always going to switch everything or we're not always going to stay with our player. It's we're going to read. Sometimes we're going to screw up. Okay, that happens. But again, the best defenders are the ones that can react to the moment and they are not obvious to the offense. Good offensive player sees obvious coverages and they just start going, okay, I'm going to come off this pick and roll and I know that they're going to switch that 45 cut. So I'm going to skip that to the corner straight away. So we need to make it tricky and deceptive for them so that as he comes off this shakes, he's like, I'm not sure what they're going to do here. And that extra second buys the on-ball defender time to get into the ball and force that wide angle. I know a lot of coaches are probably listening to this and trying to visualize it as well at the same time. If I could try to paint a picture, maybe you could help us understand if if I'm guarding a guy on the wing and then there's another offensive player in the corner, let's say they're 10 feet apart. Mm-hmm. How many feet towards the ball is the defender? And then how many feet off of the passing line is he? When you say uh, being high and towards the ball, could you give like maybe a rough estimate? Well, the worst thing is that I'm working with the metric system. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I'll, I'll try my very best. Okay. So, uh, well, we'll go to, we'll go to, yeah, whatever the, uh, how many steps? <laughs> well, again, that's, if we prescribe an amount of steps, we're saying that a one-size-fits-all approach works when it's not. It depends. We want them to get the concept of being high on their player and high in the passing lane. Now, if they're guarding a shooter, that might be one step, you know, or one and a half steps. If they're guarding a non-shooter, it could be that it's more steps. If the pick and roll is closer to the sideline, it might be more steps as well. So, the main thing is that the players need to be, um, I guess in the past we were like one step, like one third, two thirds, stuff like that. Okay. We don't give them that one size fits all. We give them the concept of be high, uh, play long, be on the passing lane. And if they're continually not in the right spot, then we will help the player. Off. I think you could be a fraction closer or, you know, but um, again, I think that's just my coaching is less about, um, do this and do and everyone do this it's more just get that concept right and if i don't like it or if i think you could do it better then i'll have a conversation with you and we can tweak it maybe in a super simple terms if i were to just throw if the guys throw a direct chest pass you should be able to steal it right percent. is that how you want and then the 100 percent. yeah they there can't be any chest pass they should always have to pass no. around defenders so that is mm-hmm. either around you know, around to the outside or they're going to have to thread it through traffic. And because we are so high, 
those gaps between the defenders are less. So again, if we talk about that, those two side, those players guarding two players on a side of the floor. So let's say there's a corner and a wing. That's a two side. So those two defenders need to be really high together. What I see a lot of is that the nail defender is high and the corner defender is low. And there's a huge gap for 45 cuts, for stampede Mm -hmm. drives, all those kind of actions when they should just both be high. And, you know, I guess the other thing is that we found that players don't like to back cut that much. I mean, they'll do it, (laughs) but they really just like to catch the ball and shoot and and drive and, you know, play with the ball in their hands. So, yeah, okay, we give up two back cuts a game, but, like, we could have given up more, but guys just like, you know what, I just really want to touch the ball. I really want to, like, break someone's ankles or, you know, like, shoot a three or something. So I think that also... No one gets on a highlight tape with a nice backdoor. Right, pad. right. You know, it's not Princeton from the 90s, you know. Like, so, uh, yeah, that, that's the other thing we found as well. Coach, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but to throw another situation at, as the pick and roll's coming to the two-man side, and when teams maybe send that baseline cut and then create space in the corner for the 45 to drift. Does that present any new challenges to this being high uh, defense, or is it still the same thing? Ball pressure, you'll follow the baseline cut, and the guys, the 45 guys just adjusting with the, with the movement. Yeah, it, it for sure. That's the, I think that's the toughest section to guard is what we call the fade action, so baseline cut and, and fade to the corner. And again, that comes down to exactly what you said about pressure and forcing a wide drive, a wide angle. It comes to the nail defender, like reading the cues. Like some teams ran that action, ran that that situation for that action only. So we could read the cues of the ball handler saying that he doesn't actually want to get downhill on this middle drive. He's just coming off the pick to set up the fade action. And in that case, Mm -hmm. the nail defender saw it coming by reading the cues of the creator and started like stunting and heading back. And he would head back on the passing lane So again, it forces a long, high pass that you can get to on the catch, or at least if you can't take out both the drive and the shot, then you read who the player is. Is it a shooter? Well, if I'm going to get beaten now, I force the baseline drive and then they run into our hands. Because again, that was was something that was unique. The coach was like, a good defensive possession is obviously, you know, forcing long contested twos, but it's also forcing the offense to drive baseline from the corners. That's also a good possession for us. And we drilled that scenario so often that when someone drove baseline, our low split could read whether it was wide drive, line drive. And if it was a line drive, we were all on those those rotations. If it was a wide drive, we build back. So I thought that was super interesting that I'd never seen it that, you know, not only we want a type of shot, but we're okay with the offense always driving to the corners. And then let's drill to that rotation. Now to finish the possession, what are you guys talking on the box out? If you, if it's a team that's really will go to the offensive boards and you guys are so high in the lanes, yep. what, what's then the technical tactical of the box out? So in general terms, I think it's body first ball second. And it's really difficult to, do the traditional, I'll block out with my arms like this and I'll read the player and I'll look at the ball. I think it's just, it's just really tough at the highest level. So we want them to body first, so find their player and crunch them. And if they're in front of them because they're on the high side, then obviously you drive them out of court or out of the rebounding space. Now, if you go for the body and they've gotten back or they're not crashing, okay, you can go to the glass. But I think that it's 
it's just really difficult to try and do, especially try and find the ball and then find the body because you never know where that guy's gone. If you look at the ball and then you're like, hang on, where's my player? They could already be in front of you by then. So I'm always one for body first, ball second. And when you do that, sometimes you're going to have, well, a lot of times you're going to have players blocking out but not rebounding the ball themselves. It's going to be someone else scooping in, you know, like the guard whose player dropped back. He's going to be the one coming in and rebounding. Pat, what do you think? Again, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no questions about Vegemite? Jeez, we've been going, what, an hour? No, yeah. <laughs> kangaroos, koalas? Come on, I thought there was going to be at least one <laughs> gag. That's the next segment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like bad I brought up the metric system. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, so, Coach, we do want to uh, go to a new segment now that we're, we, we've prepared, I wouldn't say just for you, but we feel that you would be uh, the best person to try this new segment out on. So this is called Start, Sub, or Sit. So we're going to give you three different basketball topics and you're going to say which one you would start, which one you would sub in, going to get a little playing time, and which one you're going to sit. And uh, I guess you can give us a brief explanation right. why you uh, chose what you did, but we'll have a little fun with it, uh, our inaugural time. So, Pat, if you're ready, we'll dive in. Ready. Okay. So, Coach, uh, start, sub, or sit. If you had one hour to watch a basketball game, the NBA, League or Division I NCAA college basketball? Uh, start would be EuroLeague, sub would be NBA, and sit would be college basketball. And that's not to say that I don't enjoy college basketball. I just enjoy the other ones more. Uh, but in saying that, I have been watching a lot of college basketball recently to watch some of my client film and have started to enjoy it a lot more. But uh, yeah, generally, it would be EuroLeague, NBA, then college. Out of curiosity... What good or bad? What stands out when you watch? Yeah, when you go from watching a Euroleague or NBA, and then you go and watch a college game, what really kind of jumps out at you, kind of immediately with the difference in styles? Yeah, I think the first thing is that in the college game, players just get in each other's way. So you know, it's dudes driving into dudes, and we just need to just get out the way. The second thing is a lot of the times in like pick and roll play, is that in Europe the screen comes to the ball. In college, the ball goes to the screen. So the player drives trying to find the pick and roll. Instead of in mm. Europe, the screener comes to uh, the creator. And as that's happening, the creator is doing something tricky like driving hard away from it or jabbing or just being deceptive to set his man up. So you can see this like obvious timing happen. It's like kind of, it's like music. It's like a symphony. Whereas kind of in college, it's like heavy metal. And you just got to be like, just. Yeah. Don't go and drive looking for the screen. Just like be cool, set up your player and let him come to you. So they're kind of like just the two things that I see when I, I watch it. But you know what? That's just like young men trying to learn how to play basketball and that's completely understandable. I have the same problems when I coach junior teams, the same kind of things. Yeah. yeah. Okay, coach. Start, sub or sit? Zipper entry, Iverson entry or a turnout entry? Oh, Iverson for sure start. Uh, love it. I've, uh, yeah, I've got a, a series of five series where it's an Iverson entry and I just, yeah, I love it. There's just so many different things you can do out of it. You can create so much separation. I would say zipper, uh, for sure is the one to come off the bench. Um, I do also like the deep sweeps where instead of just starting the player 
on the low post where you can tell that that player is coming off a zipper is when they come from the other side of the floor and they sweep like a deep sweep. Mm-hmm. And then although I have to sit it, um, I would still like to play it. Uh, that's the uh, turnout <laughs> entry. I, I do like a good uh, diamond or a double exit entry. Coach, with, with the zipper, what are you telling the point guard in terms of creating an angle or making space to, to give him a good pass and not a pass that's leading him to you know the half-court line? Um, I think the point guard actually has to be a, um aggressive trying to like drive baseline and like drive to the basket because then it actually flattens the defense out and it makes the defender on the ball have to guard the low side, which makes it harder for them to get a hand, like a hand in the passing lane on the high side where the pass is going to go. So, Mm. you know, I do want them to actually be a, um, you know, a threat to refuse and score. And then obviously the cutter, they've just got to figure out a way where they can let the screener come to them. Don't go early. When you go early, you end up catching the ball out on the five-point line. So it's like let the screen come to you. Then you can be tricky, so some kind of misdirection to create your separation and then take whatever line you can to catch the ball in an attacking position to play the pick and roll. You know, for us, when we play defense against the zipper, it's all about firstly cancelling it, like stopping it from happening. And secondly, making them catching in, in a non-attacking area where we can then cancel the pick and roll. So, you know, if they're out on the five-point line, we can duck under at the last second or we can push over on a wide drive. So okay. think about it like that. Yeah. Coach, start, sub, or sit. These are offensive actions. Cutting, screening, or spacing? Spacing for sure start. I think that's the... First thing and the most important thing you do whenever you get the ball to make it hard for the defense. Um, cutting would be, I would say the screening would be subbing in and then the cutting would be coming off the bench, but uh, not not sitting, not rotting on the bench. I want him to be <laughs> like a, a quality seventh man that is done in reaction to offensive cues like loss of vision or overplays. Um, but he is definitely not going to be on the treadmill or inactive in a, uh, you know, sports jacket. Like I want him okay. actually involved. <laughs> okay. Okay. He's on the stationary bike. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. um, just then with screening, you know, saying being the sixth man, we're cutting more the uh, eighth or ninth man you know, what, what's the reasoning behind why screening you maybe think is potentially a little more valuable? Well, I think with the screening, you can create a, a few more advantages by, you know, two on the cutter, two on the screener. If you do it right, you can create space, you know, for a shot, you can create OBDs. So there's just more advantages you can create by working together. And that's one thing we say to our players is that the higher levels you get up, it's actually harder to create advantages on your own. So you catch the ball and you isolate and you play one-on-one because not only is the defender on the ball at a high level, but then everyone off the ball is at a high level and they're attuned to what you're doing. So it's actually easier to create advantages when we work together. And one of those is screen and we can create a whole host of advantages when we work together in the right manner. Coach with the screen, what are you telling the screener run directly to the defender or, you know, what's kind of the distance you want him to keep before he sets the screen or hits the screener, if that makes sense. Sure, We want them to come all the way to the cutter or all the way to the ball. And I mean, it's a little bit differently um, off ball screens to on ball screens about what the angle is, but generally they go right up, right up to the, um, 
to the cutter or the ball. And again, it, there might be times where they slip out early. So they read that their defender is on the outside and they see that and they slip out early. That's fine. Uh, but generally, we always want to bring the screen to the ball or the screen to the cutter. And then we can, once we're there, we okay. can figure out angles depending on the coverage of the defense or whether we hit and hold, whether we just like slip and go. Um, you know, that, that's a coverage dependent thing. Okay. Yeah. And, and I guess the main thing is we're not worried about offensive fouls. Like it's the same thing with backdoor cuts. You give up two offensive fouls a game, no problem. It's the other 60 screens that you set, which were highly illegal, but they were moving <laughs> yeah. and it was so much harder for the defense to like react to them, stay on balance. I would just be like, get up as quick, as fast as you can and stop on a, like generally we stop on a stride stop because, it, you know, instead of just mm. jumping and, you know, no, that stands out like dog's balls. Yeah. So we don't <laughs> want to do that. We want to sprint and stop at the last second and surprise the defense. It should be like an ambush. You know, I come in and I'm bang, I'm here and I'm setting that screen. Takes you by surprise. And then we play and we react out of that. All right, coach. Uh, start, sub, or sit in terms of preparing for an opponent. Video scouting, a scouting report, or five on oh, five on five kind of walkthrough? The, uh, the scouting report is definitely inactive. He's not on the roster anymore. <laughs> I've, uh, I've traded him to another team. Um, and then, uh, video for sure. I think the video is always important to, I think it's, it's good to just show the players the evidence. You know, we, we, we always, sometimes we think the players are watching lots of film and, and, and sometimes they are, but actually showing them the evidence of what I am saying is actually what is happening. And here is the video to support that. You know, they do this against the pick and roll. Here it is on video. And they're like, okay, you're right, coach. I believe you. And I can get a visual picture of this. And then you support that with the on the court stuff and some simulations. So it's not, it's not 100%, but it's not walkthroughs. It's somewhere in between where we're like, we, we got a little sweat up. We're seeing where the gaps in our strategy might be. That happens a lot where you think that this is going to work in your mind or in the coach's room. And then you get on the floor and once it starts going at a, you know, a fast speed, you're like, there's just no way that guy's going to be able to tag and get back and get through that screen. So I think five on five simulations. So the video and the five on five simulations, maybe that's a, it's like, I'm not sure who to start here. I'm going to have to have a conversation with them and be like, you're a great starter, but I need you to play with the second unit. So I'm not sure who I'm going to start and who I'm going to bring off the bench. I value them both. <laughs> but but the scout sheet you've traded. You, oh, that's gone. It's gone. <laughs> he's he's down in I don't know in the G League somewhere. You know, oh, he's gone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, um, coach, a start sub or sit or in some cases you've traded, but start <laughs> sub or sit from an offensive skill set standpoint: shooting, ball handling, or passing. Okay, shooting is the starter and he's the high-volume scorer. Uh, shooting is the premium skill. It makes it, everything easier if you can do it. It, can, it makes everything so much harder when you can't. I will say that uh, I love passing more, so that will be the sub, but I understand that dribbling is important, so he will be on the bench, but I will 
still want to get him involved in the action. And I, I may get a call from his agent because his agent thinks he's more important than what he is, but I'll be saying, or his mom or dad or his mom yeah. or dad. And I'll yeah. say, no, I still, I still value him. I just like the passing better and sure as shit. He's not as good as the shooting. <laughs> uh, I love it. It'd be nice to get the ball handler a little bit of time, maybe in the first end of the first half. Sure. Sure. Just to make him feel good. Yeah. 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 Well, it might, it might be at the games in his hometown and we've got to, you know, let him play in front right. of his, his other dribbling yeah. family members. That's right. The crossover, the, the killer cross. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, my last one, coach, looking at a pick and roll coverage, trapping, hard hedging, or just a quick show? Uh, the quick show is the starter. And I, I, I preface that by saying that I call it cancelling. So the cancelling the screen is for sure the starter. So the other one was hard hedging and... Hard hedging or a full-on trap? Blitzing uh, it. The trap would be on the bench. I just think that the higher levels you go, it's just like the players, they're just too good. Like that, you get two on the ball and like that, that pass is gone. And especially when you're doing it all the time, and it's obvious they just see that happening. So I would say the quick show or cancel is one. Off the bench would be the hard hedge, and then the trap is the sit. Coach, I, I just feel like I'll ask you this question, and we can cut it on the podcast if it's no good, but start, sub, or sit? Australian beer, German beer, or American beer? Okay, so German beer for sure is the starter. <laughs> There's... Some things that Germans do really well, uh, cars and beer are two of those things. So German beer, <laughs> number one, lecker immer, delicious every time. Yeah. <laughs> now, Australian beer, it will come off the bench, but it will be, uh, I'm playing a short rotation. I'm playing the German beer, <laughs> the top six, seven guys. Australian beer is a spot minutes player at the eighth position. American beer, that again, that is, he's, he's traded. He's gone. Like, <laughs> I have cut, he, he didn't even make it through training camp, though. Yeah. Oh, so, all, <laughs> so, I'm sorry. I love America that you do, guys. You guys do a lot of things really well. Beer is not one of them. So, uh, <laughs> that is my, my right. I have to system. agree. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if we threw a wild card in there, because one of the ones I thought of was Belgian beer. Yes. Um, W- would that be in the rotation or that start or where would you? That would be in the backcourt. That'd be like a Dame Lillard, CJ McCollum backcourt of okay. German Belgian beer. <laughs> sure. <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh. All right. Well, coach, you're, uh, you're off the, uh, the hot seat there. Thank you. That was, we, we would have to start you if it came to, you know, who are the best yeah. at these games. You would be a starter. Oh, for thank sure. you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as we round the corner here of the the interview, and this has been great, by the way. Thank you very much. Yeah. Really learning a lot here. You're someone that has, you know, putting a lot of time into the game and learning and coaching in different countries and consulting with players. Interested to hear what might be one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach. Uh, definitely the um, the tertiary studies. Uh, that, that was where I learned the most from my coaching. Of course, I've been really fortunate to be around some amazing coaches. So, you know, Coach Kaddish, Coach Bauman uh, in Germany, I've been super fortunate. Um, but doing some extra studies in the, like, the coaching pedagogy space, so as in how to actually um, teach things, how to create learning environments, uh, that's 
been a game changer for me because I thought that um, what I was doing was the only way and the right way. And really, when I learn about uh, how we how we actually learn and how we actually apply skills in dynamic situations, it's been a game changer for me as a coach. And it's made me rethink the way I talk, if I even intervene, and most importantly, how I design practices and practice drills. And now I'm at a point where I'm, if the drill can do the talking, I don't need to. So that was a game changer for me. So whether you actually do a full uh, qualification or just learn about it, I think it's really worth the investment to dive into some papers on uh, ecological dynamics and coaching pedagogies and small-sided games, that kind of thing, because I think it will, it will really open your eyes to a different way of coaching. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for further insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching and we'll see you next time on Slapping Class. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping back or <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Those are all <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>